Well, good morning. So glad you're here this morning and uh, glad that technology is such that we can uh, live stream our services. So we've got some folks down here joining us. I don't know who's out there, but hello, Internet world. Here we are. Apparently, all the people who normally sit right here are apparently at home in their pajamas or something like that. But, uh, but this morning, we begin a brand new series in the book of Jonah. And as we start, let me just ask you a question. How many of us are familiar with the story of Jonah? Yeah, a, a vast majority of us, almost all of us. And uh, that's a problem, actually. It's a, it's a big problem because... Uh, and I think it's one of the reasons that, that, that God wants us to examine this book over the next few weeks. But it's a problem because if I would have asked the question, how many of us have uh, thoughtfully and carefully read through the book of Jonah, maybe even more than once? If I'd asked you how many of us had studied the book of Jonah, I won't ask you to raise your hands. But I'm guessing it's quite a few less of us that would, would have answered that. Uh, not many of us have really taken time with this, this book. But we know the story because of things like this. The Veggie Tales factor, right? Yeah. In fact, several people have confirmed this over the past couple of weeks. I mentioned we'd be in the book of Jonah, and a lot of people brought up this talking cucumber and talking tomato and whatever that other guy is. Uh, but this is a challenge. It's a challenge, and it's a problem with Jonah, not just Jonah, but with a lot of Bible stories in general, because for many of us, we've encountered these stories not through thoughtful reading of them or study of them, but we've encountered them because they've been handed to us as children's tales. And what happens in the children's versions of stories is that most of these Bible stories, they get watered down, they get simplified, and somehow they all end up with kind of a simple moralistic lesson, like, oh, be a nice person, just be nice, right? Well, thank God this story is about much more than being a nice person, when it comes to Jonah, uh, we've really reduced the story to one very bizarre element. Anytime you think about the story of Jonah, you think about, I'm going to pretend that you said fish, because that's what I was thinking. But yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a, a fish tale. We've, we've kind of tongue-in-cheek put it in our, our sermon series graphic. But the, the fish is only in two sentences in the whole story. Uh, and as I was studying this book, I was preparing this message, I did a lot of reading about the fish, how to think carefully about the fish part, because let's be honest, it's weird. It's really bizarre. It's hard to swallow, pun intended. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll get into the fish thing next week a little bit, but it's not really a story about a fish. If we make the fish the focus, we really miss the main thing. We miss the whole story in some ways. And, and the book of Jonah, it's so masterfully written. It's, it's full of wit and wordplay and drama and irony. It has this amazing structure to it. And if we only understand it at a child level, we risk missing the whole thing. Because ultimately, Jonah has been carefully preserved as part of our sacred scriptures. In fact, for all the the skepticism around the book of Jonah, the actual text of it has been very well preserved over the centuries. Very little doubt that the version we have today is very, very faithful to the original. And so over the centuries, Jonah has been preserved, it's been protected, and even though uh, ancient people, they didn't believe in this stuff any more easily than we do, just because they lived a long time ago doesn't make them stupider than us, right? The story has always been weird, and yet it's been passed down. It's part of 
the Bible. It's been preserved. And the purpose of the scriptures is not to entertain us, not to entertain children. The purpose of the Bible is ultimately something much more important than that, to reveal the character of God to us. How do we know what God is like? He tells us and he shows us. And the purpose of the Bible is to point us to Jesus, to reveal his character, his purpose, to help us understand what he's doing in the world. And every book of the Bible ultimately points to that, to reveal God, to reveal Jesus to us, and then how we live in, in light of that. And so if we reduce the book of Jonah to the VeggieTales factor, we've missed it all. It's not just a moral lesson. It teaches us about the very heart of God. It tells us something critical about who God is, something that we desperately need to understand right now. And if we want to understand this message from God, we need to start by reading the story. So let's do that. We're going to start right at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, The word of Yahweh came to Jonah, son of Amittai. I'm actually going to stop right there. I told you this is, it's a short book, it's just packed full of details, and right in verse 1, we get a very interesting detail. The book starts off the way a lot of prophetic books starts off. The word of Yahweh comes to a prophet. In this case, the word of Yahweh comes to this particular prophet, Jonah, and he's identified very simply, the son of Amittai. No background information is given, and that's because no background information is needed. He doesn't need an introduction. Jonah is a person who was very well-known. He had a reputation. The, the detail that I don't want us to miss here is that this is not the only time we've heard the name Jonah. He appears one other place in the Bible, and it's no small mention, frankly. It helps us understand what this book is really all about. And so before we go any farther in Jonah, let's look at this other place where Jonah is mentioned in the Bible. It comes in 2 Kings chapter 14. You don't need to turn there. You probably already have it memorized anyway, but just in case, I'll put it on the screens here. It says this, Jeroboam became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight. So just a bit of context here. Jeroboam, he's the king of Israel. He's evil, as it says. And a couple of biblical prophets spoke against him. Uh, Amos, Hosea, they both lived at the same time. They spoke out against the evils of Jeroboam's reign. Both prophesied against him. And in fact, just a couple of chapters later, 2 Kings 17, that's when the, the northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria, sent into exile, just as these prophets warned them about. But look at the very next verse. Verse 25 says, He restored Israel's border from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word Yahweh, the God of Israel, had spoken through his servant, the prophet Jonah, son of Amittai. So Jonah plays the role in the, in the spread of this evil king's reign. Jonah was a, a patriotic, nationalistic kind of a guy. He's all for the, the growth and expansion of the northern kingdom of Israel. He supports this aggressive military policy of Jeroboam. So Jonah doesn't really need an introduction to the original readers of his book because they would have remembered him as intensely patriotic, highly partisan, nationalist guy. And his situation is a bit complicated because Jonah's ministry helped secure the border of Israel. Lebo Hamath is, is in the north, the northern edge of Israel's territory, a land that Assyrians were trying to capture. And so the mention of Jonah's name would bring to mind how evil those Assyrians are, how they're the enemy of God. It would automatically make the original readers think Jonah's going to put these Assyrians in their place once again. Right? He's a prophet of Israel. So when we start the book of Jonah, the same prophet Jonah gets a word from Yahweh, and we have to assume it's going to be more of the same, something in line with the work that he's already done, something very 
pro-Israel. So with that background in mind, let's read the beginning of Jonah again. The word of Yahweh came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. So God tells this patriot Jonah to go to another place and preach over there. But not just any old place, to go to Nineveh. That's the capital of Assyria, the heart of the enemy. The ones who are continually trying to conquer Jonah's homeland and destroy God's people. Yet God tells Jonah to go over there and preach to them. And it's difficult to describe how terrible the people of Nineveh really were. These Assyrians were were ancient terrorists. They were quite possibly the most horrific military power in history. And and while I don't believe that anyone has invented anything as uh, uh, horrible as crucifixion, the Assyrians certainly laid the groundwork for what it looked like to torture and humiliate people. They would skin victims alive. They would blind people for fun. They would put people's head on a pole as a warning to others. They would cut off a person's left arm or their legs, but they would leave the right arm intact so they could shake hands with people as they died. They were terrible, terrible people. They slapped people with fishes. And yet, these are the people that God wants to reach. God tells Jonah, preach against Nineveh because their evil has come up before me. So it seems like Jonah's got a pretty straightforward task. God's basically telling him, hey, remember all that great work we did before? Let's do it again. But Jonah's smart. He knows a little bit about how God works. He knows that there's no reason for him to go and send a warning unless there's a chance that God's judgment could be averted. Jonah understands the major tension of this story. God is a God of justice, but he's also a God of mercy. Both are true. So preaching against Nineveh seems like it would be satisfying to be able to say to these terrible people, you are evil and God is very angry with you. But Jonah knows there's another side to that coin. God won't send a message of judgment without providing a path towards repentance and mercy. So right out of the gate, we're hit with a major challenge in this book. And we haven't even got to the part with the fish yet. Part of the purpose of this book is helping us reconcile God's justice and God's mercy. They seem to be at odds with each other, and yet a God is a God who's fully just. He's full of justice. In fact, the only way the world even knows what justice is, is because of God. He is justice. And at the same time, God is a God of mercy. He's full of mercy. Both are true. And I think it's this tension that makes this book a story. I mean, if it was just a a theological document, it would be complex and, and hard to understand, but it's a story, so we're forced to put ourselves into the story. We're forced to wrestle with the tension on our own. We're forced to to put ourselves in Jonah's shoes and figure out how we might respond to God. And all that introduction leads us into the book. And because it's a story, it's important to note one more thing right from the beginning. It's important to realize who this story was written for. This book of Jonah is a message not for Ninevites. It's a message for God's people. It's not written to Assyria. It's written for us, for God's people. The lessons here are for us. This book reveals something to us that's critical about God. 
Maybe you've heard the ancient story of the Gordian Knot. The legend has it that in the ancient city of Gordium, there was a very complex knot in the center of town, a bunch of rope tied in a knot so complex that no one could untie it. And the story was that anyone who could unravel the Gordian Knot would be the, the ruler of all of the world. And Alexander the Great came into town, took one look at the knot, pulled out his sword and just cut right through it. In the same way, we we tend to treat God like a Gordian knot. We don't understand him, his complexity, so we just cut right through him. And we, we simplify him. We say, man, good people get mercy, bad people get justice, boom. That's kind of the way that Jonah seems to think. But the problem for Jonah, and the problem for us as well, is that we want a God of our own making. A God who simply smites bad people like Ninevites and and blesses good people like us. But throughout this story, the real God, not some counterfeit simplistic God, but the real God keeps showing up. Jonah shows us that the real God, he's a lot more like a Gordian knot. He's both fully just and fully merciful. And Jonah can't reconcile how God can be merciful to people who are so violent and evil. How can God be both just and merciful? Well, the answer to that question is found in the story. Let's read. The word of Yahweh came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from Yahweh's presence. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from Yahweh's presence. So God gives Jonah this command, get up and go. And it's a common command in the prophets. We see the same thing over and over again with prophets. Uh, God commands Elijah, get up, go to Zarephath. God tells Jeremiah, get up, go to the Euphrates. It's a common command for the prophets. And the response in, in both those cases is they got up and they went. That's what we expect. God speaks, people obey. But Jonah does just the opposite. God says, get up and go. And the story tells us Jonah got up to flee. The opposite response. And not only does he flee, but he tries to get as far away as he can. Nineveh is to the east of Israel. Jonah goes west. And nobody knows for sure where Tarshish was exactly, but it was far away, the farthest known port at the time. Some folks believe it was even out in western Spain, like Jonah could not have gotten farther away unless he sailed to America. Okay, and, and, and he, he does that. Jonah uh, runs away, and he pays the price. He pays the fare because disobedience always has a cost. He pays the fare. He gets on a boat, and yet God makes it very clear that he is in control. Just as God is concerned with the people of Nineveh, not just the people of Israel, God is the God of the sea. He's not just the God of the land. And so God responds to Jonah's disobedience. Look at verse 4. <clears throat> But Yahweh threw a great wind onto the sea, and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. So this group of professional sailors is terrified by God's display of his power. And they're apparently a diverse group of people. They have all different gods. They're all focused on different gods from different places, different cultures. They don't know which god is sending this storm. So they just kind of fire prayers out to all of them. But they realize this is a storm of epic proportions. 
something that's threatening to kill them all. So they're throwing cargo overboard. God is throwing a storm, and it's pretty clear who's going to win the throwing battle, right? But Jonah, he understands what's happening. He knows Yahweh is the one true God over all the false gods out there. He knows exactly what's happening. And the scene reminds me a little bit of the, the story of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, where, where folks from all different cultures are gathered in Jerusalem. And they see this weird event with the disciples. And the Holy Spirit has a plan for that moment. And the disciples, they seize on that plan. They begin to explain uh, all these diverse people that the one true God has revealed himself in Jesus, Savior of all the world. Well, Jonah kind of has an opportunity like that, an unexplainable phenomenon, this huge storm, and all these non-believing pagan sailors, they're paying attention, they're desperate for an answer. So how does Jonah respond? Let's keep reading. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. That's his response. Not concerned for these sailors, not fear that his disobedience might be putting lives at risk, not taking the opportunity to share the truth about God to people who are really ready to listen. No, he's just sleeping, thinking of himself. And in fact, these pagan sailors, none of whom believe in Yahweh yet, they're all more responsive to God than Jonah was. Let's keep reading verse 6. The captain approached him and said, What are you doing sound asleep? Get up. Call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. Come on, the sailors said to each other. Let's cast lots. Then we'll know who's to blame for this trouble we're in. So they cast lots and the lots singled out Jonah. They said to him, Tell us, who's to blame for this trouble we're in? What's your business? Where are you from? What's your country? What people are you from? He answered them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship Yahweh, the God of heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were seized by a great fear and said to him, What have you done? The men knew he was fleeing from Yahweh's presence because he had told them. So they said, What should we do to you so that the sea will calm down for us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. So Jonah identifies God for them. Yahweh, the the God who made both the sea and the dry land, suddenly these guys begin to understand that Yahweh is more powerful than all their gods, and he's the one who brought this storm. Now, if we hadn't read all the story so far, if all we knew was that there was this dispute between some pagan sailors and a prophet of the one true God, if that's all the info we had and we were asked to choose sides, all our money would go towards the prophet, certainly, right? But in this case, these pagan sailors, they're the ones speaking truth, and, they, and the prophet is putting them all in danger with his disobedience. The whole thing's backwards. Maybe you know the story of King Canute. Canute was a medieval king who gained control of England, Norway, and Denmark, and his powers grew so much that he gained this reputation for being all-powerful. People began to talk about him and think about him like he was a god. Well, he was dismayed by all this talk, thinking that he was so powerful, he had godlike abilities, and so he set up a demonstration. Listen to the story. At the height of his power, King Canute stood on the seashore when the tide was coming in, and he shouted out to the flowing sea, The sea is subject to my command, as is the land on which I'm seated. No one has ever resisted my commands. So I command you then, sea, not to flow over my land. Don't presume to wet the feet of your Lord. Well, the tide continued to, 
to come in as usual, dashed over the feet, dashed over his legs with no respect to this royal command. So the king jumps backwards and he says, let all men know how empty and worthless is the power of kings. For there is none worthy of the name of God whom heaven and earth and the sea obey. Jonah understands the same thing King Canute knows. Only one God has power over all the land and the sea. And Jonah understands you can't run away to any place where Yahweh is not. God's the one who threw the storm on Jonah's boat, and so he responds to these sailors in verse 12. He answered them, Pick me up, throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you, for I know that I am to blame for this great storm that is against you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. So they called out to Yahweh, Please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life, and don't charge us with innocent blood, for you, Yahweh, have done just as you pleased. It's worth noting again in this narrative, the story paints these sailors with a lot of compassion, much more than Jonah himself. Jonah tells them that he knows the way to calm the storm, And it means he has to die. They have to throw him overboard. But these sailors are still reluctant to take his life. They fear God greatly, even though Jonah has no regard for his own life. Let's keep reading verse 15. Then they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. The men were seized by a great fear of Yahweh. They offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. Yahweh appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So there's the fish. And before we get distracted by the fish part, let's remember something we said already. This is a story about God. The story reveals something about the character of God, His perfect justice and His perfect mercy that are both always present. God shows mercy to these sailors by giving them a way to be saved. The sacrifice of one person, Jonah, saves them from the storm and from death. God's mercy is revealed to these men, and they respond with worship. And God even gives Jonah mercy through a fish. His rescue, being in the fish, is an act of mercy. He's not swallowed by death, but instead he's rescued from death. And Jonah, he's not just a solo act. He's really a a representative person. He represents all of us who are God's people, those of us who are followers of Jesus. And Pastor Tim Mackey has a good way for us to think about Jonah. He talks about the the scene that's in like every spy movie there is, right? Maybe it's in a warehouse or dark alley or wherever. The bad guy's chasing the good guy. And all of a sudden, the good guy sees that, that laser dot right on his chest, right? That dot that means he's the target. There's a right in the crosshairs, right? You can think of that kind of movie. Well, that's the story of Jonah. We see Jonah, the way he responds to God, all these crazy things that happen, we think, wow, what a story. But if we're really paying attention, we learn some things about God, and then we see it. We see ourselves with that red dot right on our chest. This is a book for us to teach us about our own attitudes, our own actions. The whole story is aimed at shooting us right in the chest. So let's put ourselves in the crosshairs for just a moment. Let's do our own gut check. This book starts off with God's call to Jonah. That's the same call for us. Get up and go. That's the command for Jonah, but also for us. Get up and go. 
Now, the place where we go is not Nineveh. It might be. It might be somewhere else. It might be right in our own house. God calls some to go to other cultures and share the gospel, but God calls all of us to get up and go somewhere. Get up and go, meaning go do my work. Go represent me in my perfect justice and mercy to the world. God calls each of us to represent his mercy and his justice right here in our valley. And there's a lot of work to be done in this valley. I want to share some information with you, and then I want to challenge each of us to our own unique work. So first, the information. Walla Walla County has about 60,000 people. That might change a little bit after the new census, but it's a pretty good estimate of the population, 60,000 people. And the good news is about 40% of those people, 40% of folks here, consider themselves religious. If you ask people, almost half of the valley would say, yes, I'm a religious person. About 24,000 people consider themselves religious, right? Well, that's not actually good news because that means a lot of people are fooling themselves. They are deceived, thinking that being a religious person is all that's needed for eternal life and salvation. Of course, that's not the case. And even though 40% of people would describe themselves as religious, not many people follow through on that in any kind of meaningful way. So let me share another statistic with you. Over the years here at Trinity, we've done a survey of area churches, just, just calling up, asking churches to share with us their average attendance. Churches of all kinds, basically any church we can identify, we've contacted and asked about what their average attendance is, trying to figure out how many people in the valley attend church. As we've done this uh, several times over the years, we did it this month. And the last time we did it was 2016. And, and right now, 2020, less than 6,000 people attend church of any kind. That's, uh, you know, all kinds of churches, Catholics, Methodists, Lutheran, Adventist, Baptist, everything. Right? And you know, churches, they always inflate their attendance numbers, so it's probably even less than that. But 6,000, we'll call it that, it's a round number. So So we started with 60,000 people in the valley, then down to 40% who call themselves religious, 24,000 people. And now we're down to to 10%, less than 6,000 people who attend church. So I hope you're beginning to feel a burden for the spiritual state of our valley, our own friends and neighbors, right? And a, a side note, something else that should break our hearts when I compared the church attendance to 2020 with the stats we gathered in 2016, is minimal change. The numbers are about the same. So that tells me we've got a valley full of churches that are not growing, not effectively reaching out to the valley. So that's some of the stats. I have more. Because just like being religious is not the goal for people, uh, that's not God's desire for people. In the same way, attending church is not the ultimate goal. Church is important, but that's not the ultimate goal that God has. God didn't tell Jonah, get up and go and tell the Ninevites to attend church. That's not the ultimate goal. Ultimately, God wants people to come to know and understand and embrace the truth of the gospel, the message of what Jesus has done. And so as I look at this list of churches and we look at all the folks who are attending church, then the number of folks that are actually exposed to the gospel in our valley is much, much lower. Of these 6,000 church attenders, I'm going to be generous generous, and say about 3,000 of them are exposed to the gospel. And like 3,000, that's like a large number, you know, that's a lot of gospel impact. But it also means that 57,000 people in our valley are living and dying each day apart from knowledge of God who loves them and has demonstrated that love through Jesus' death and resurrection. That should break our hearts. 
All these stats, all this info, that same heart leads God to tell Jonah, get up and go. And God commands you and I to do the same thing. Get up and go. My desire for each and every one of us is to develop our own burden for this valley. And I don't mean that as a church we're gathered and we're sharing the gospel. I mean each one of us individually has a broken heart for the people in our valley. Not that our church does something, not that we collectively are doing things, but I mean you and you and you and you and me are all heartbroken for the people that we get up and go to work with, we go to school with, people who need to hear the gospel. And I know sometimes we can lull ourselves into thinking that as a church we're doing things to, to really impact our valley, and that's true, we are. We've done amazing things at our church. We continue to do that, but that doesn't change the fact that each one of us needs to have a personal burden, a personal devotion for people. And so just to make sure that we're not lulled into thinking that, oh, well, I give money to this church, I serve here at the church, I support what we're doing, I'm off the hook. Just to avoid that kind of thinking, i got one more statistic for you. Uh, so some of you know this, some of you may not know this, but this church doesn't make any money. We don't have a, a stream of income. All the money that God gives to this church comes from our offering. That's the resource that God gives us. There's no other money that comes in. So whatever money you and I give to this church, that's what we use to pay the bills, to do ministry, all of it, right? And of all the offering that we collect, less than $3 each week per person goes out the doors. So I don't know what you give each week. I don't have any idea how much people give, but $3 from each of our giving goes to do the kind of ministry that we're talking about, advancing the gospel out there. So I share that with you so that we can't lean on the thinking that says, well, I give to this church, the church does things in the community, I'm off the hook. Less than $3 of what you give each week goes out the doors. So my desire this morning, my desire with this entire study of the book of Jonah is to spur each and every one of us to develop our own personal burden for ministry in our community. Each and every one of us has to own God's command to get up and go. So I want to leave us with a couple of things that we can pray about that are going to get us started in this thinking, this get up and go lifestyle. First of all, first thing to pray about is something a lot of you already know about, but uh, uh, many of us know about our ongoing partnership with Blue Ridge Elementary. We've partnered with them in a variety of ways over the years. We helped launch their PTA Uh, We provided food and clothing for some of the students who had nothing. We provide Christmas gifts and food to families in need. We've shown support to the staff in all kinds of different ways. It's been a huge blessing to us to be able to serve our community through Blue Ridge. But you may also know Blue Ridge is changing dramatically in this coming school year. It's not going to be an elementary school anymore. Obviously, that has an impact not just on our community, but on this church. Our strategic ministry partnership is is changing, and I don't know what the future holds. And so I just want to ask each of us to pray. Pray that, uh, that God would reveal what he wants to do through us. If God is closing a door at Blue Ridge, then we want to find out where he might be opening another door. Maybe it's another elementary school. I don't know. Maybe there's something totally different. I want to just ask each of us to pray how we can best serve our valley. And so that's just one thing I want all of us to do. And as you do that, I'm really prayerful, too, that you'll begin to develop your own personal burden. 
Second thing I want us to consider is uh, it's in your worship folder. We're going to have a prayer walk on March 22nd. We're going to divide up, walk around our neighborhoods, walk around our community, and just pray. Because we have faith that, that God, the one true God, He's the only one who can change our community, who can change people's hearts. And so we're just going to commit our community to Him, praying for our neighbors, praying for that 57,000 people in our city without any gospel exposure. So that's coming up, and I'd love for you to be a part of that. Just mark your connection card if you want to participate, and we'll get more information out to you. Another thing I want you to pray about is Easter. Easter Sunday is coming up, Resurrection Sunday right around the corner. It's a great chance for us to invite our friends to church, to give them a great chance to hear and embrace the gospel and experience the fellowship that we enjoy. And So I want you just to pray about who God wants you to invite. I, I can save you a step. I know that God wants you to invite people. You don't have to wonder about that. Just pray about who God wants you to invite. And again, my hope is that as you pray, God will use that as a way for you to develop your own personal conviction for people who are in our valley. You'll reach out to people in your path. I'll reach out to people in my path, different people, and we'll see the gospel at work. Uh, One other thing I want to say about Easter, just briefly, uh, it's a great chance to invite our friends. It's a great chance to, to invite people. And one of the things I'd love to know, just my own curiosity, I'd love to know if you're here at Trinity because somebody else invited you. I'd love to know that. And I just, maybe if that's true, if you're here because so-and-so invited you, just say, hey, I'm here, so-and-so invited me 10 years ago or two weeks ago or whatever. I'd just love to know that. Just want to be able to, to thank those people, frankly. That's what I want. So you can mark on your connection card about that if that's you. Uh, finally, one unusual opportunity we have to impact our valley right now is through all the fears and concerns about the coronavirus. You know, that gives each of us a chance to speak very directly to the peace that we have as Jesus' followers. That gives each of us a chance to demonstrate our own faith. The Scriptures tell us that perfect love casts out fear. We have a chance to respond to our valley not with fear, but with the love of God through Jesus Christ. Not putting our trust in hand sanitizer, but putting our trust in the one true God, right? I'm reminded of a story from nothing against hand sanitizer, by the way. That's a helpful practice. Uh, I'm reminded of a story from the early days of Christianity. The Roman Empire had a, a famine, a large-scale famine that turned into a plague. And, and folks were fleeing the city just in order to survive. And as everybody else fled, the Christians stayed behind. One early church writer shares this story. He says, all day long, some of the Christians tended to the sick, countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine and distributed bread to them all. The Christians responded with love in the time of crisis. And the Romans took notice. They understood that the Christian response was different from their own response. The emperor of Rome at the time, Julian, said this in response. He said, when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the pagan priests, then I think the Christians observed this fact and they devoted themselves to philanthropy. To another person, he wrote, The Christians support not only their poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. In fact, the Emperor Julian proposed that the pagan priests just imitate what the Christians were doing. Well, with 57,000 people in our valley watching how we might respond, we have an amazing opportunity to serve our community with love. It's not necessarily going to come as a church-wide program. It's going to start as individual followers of Jesus, you and you and you, and you, and me, 
developing our own burden for our community. So this story of Jonah, it's, it's not a story about a fish. It's a story about God, his perfect justice and his perfect mercy. And Jonah is the central character of the story because, as we said, he's a representative person. He represents each of us. When God commands us to get up and go, are we going to respond like Jonah? Flee to our own comfortable church circle, content with what God has done for us, focusing on ourselves? Or are we going to take God's commands seriously? Get up and go. And as we ponder that question, it's very daunting, daunting to think of all the need in the world, all the need just here in our valley, and to think that we're the ones who are going to meet that need. It's overwhelming. But just as Jonah is a representative person, there's another person who represents us. Another person who not only represents us, but who empowers us to respond to God with obedience, not with disobedience like Jonah. And I wanted to share the whole story of Jonah in the boat this morning in part because it's remarkably similar to another Bible story. You might be familiar with the story of Jesus calming a storm. So you got your Bible open to Jonah chapter 1, but I want you to also listen to the story of Jesus calming a storm. One day, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat and he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they were sailing, he fell asleep. Then a fierce windstorm came down on the lake. They were being swamped, and they were in danger. They came and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we're going to die. Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. So they ceased, and there was calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed, asking one another, Who then is this? He commands even the winds and the waves, and they obey him. Maybe you can already see some of the comparisons to the story of Jesus and the story of Jonah, two representative people. A pastor in California put this chart together, but it helps us to see some of the comparisons. Take a look. First of all, both men are in a boat, obvious comparison. In both cases, a storm arises. Both boats are threatened by a storm. So far, not too many odd comparisons, right? But then notice, both Jonah and Jesus are sleeping through the storm. That's a little interesting. Everybody's panicking, everybody's afraid, but these two are asleep. That's significant. In both cases, the response of their companions is fear. Both the sailors in Jonah's boat and the disciples in Jesus' boat cry out, we're going to die. The next point of comparison comes when the two storms cease. In Jonah's case, as soon as Jonah is thrown overboard, the storm instantly ceases Proof to these sailors, it was indeed Yahweh who caused the storm. Miraculously, it stops. And in the case of Jesus and his disciples, Jesus speaks. His own authority over nature causes the storm to cease. And the response from the people on both boats is telling. In Jonah's case, the sailors are even more terrified after the storm is calm. They, they were seized by great fear of Yahweh in response to what they'd witnessed. In the case of the disciples, they're fearful and amazed at seeing what Jesus has done in calming the storm. And you'll notice there's one more point of comparison. The last item on the chart says both Jonah and Jesus were thrown into the storm. And maybe you're thinking, I don't remember the part about Jesus being thrown into the storm. Well, for Jonah, of course, that's exactly what happens. He's sacrificed. He's thrown out of the boat into the storm as a sacrifice so that the other sailors might be saved. God gets the perfect justice he requires because the disobedient Jonah is sacrificed. And yet Jonah gets the perfect mercy he does not deserve when God spares his life with a fish so that he can be raised back to dry land three days later. 
For Jesus, he's also a representative person. He represents all of us when he took on the sins of the world. He was not literally thrown into the storm, but he was given over to death for our sake. He was a perfect sacrifice for us, satisfying God's perfect justice. When Jesus died, he died not for his own sins, but for yours and mine. His obedience to God means that God's justice was satisfied. God was pleased with the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. And as a result, we are the recipients of God's perfect mercy, giving us grace we don't deserve because of Jesus' obedience. So the story of Jonah teaches us about God's justice and God's mercy, and it points us to the ultimate way that God's justice and mercy are revealed in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Jonah is in some ways a gospel story. So our response to God's command, get up and go, it's not a response on our own power. It's a response that's motivated by the mercy of God the Father has given us. It's a response that's modeled on the obedience Jesus has demonstrated as he went to the cross for our sake. And it's a response that's fueled by the Holy Spirit who gives us the ability to love beyond ourselves, to trust God in faith, to walk with him, to get up and go. Let's pray. God, we have to uh, confess how often we have been complacent in the relationships that you've given us, unwilling or uh, unable to share with confidence the truth about who you are and what you've done for us. We have to confess how many times we've just been comfortable by ourselves, comfortable not uh, adding people to our numbers here, but just being together and thinking that that's somehow what you desire for us. And yet uh, we know that through the death and the resurrection of your son Jesus, you've given us an incredible commission to go, to make disciples, to baptize and teach and, and proclaim all the things that you've done for the sake, not just of ourselves, but for other people. And so I pray that you would empower us to look to Jesus, not only as our Savior, but also as our example of obedience, what it means to get up and go. And that you would help us to trust in the Holy Spirit dwelling within us to guide us into perfect love that shows mercy to people who are in need of it, Lord. And I pray that you would use us as individuals, help us to develop that own, our own burden, that, that heart burden that will spur us to be a collection of Jesus' followers, a church that is incredibly effective at reaching the valley for the sake of the gospel. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.